Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode from Going West 2017, fresh from a spectacular opening night performance, creative collaborators Bill Manhire and Norman Meehan join Paula Green to explore their fusion of poetry and music. Morena. Okay, so our next session, and welcome to you all, is called Words and Melody, and I know many of you were here last night and saw the fabulous performance of Small Holes in the Silence. So today we're going to be hearing more about that process of bringing the poetry and the melody together. And we're really fortunate today to have on stage again with us uh, Norman Meehan, jazz composer and musician, Bill Manhire, poet, and Paula Green to walk us through their process. I would also just like to take this opportunity on the behalf of Going West to congratulate Paula Green. This year she's received several awards. Earlier in the year she was admitted to the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to poetry and literature. And just last month she was given the Prime Minister's Award for literary achievement, and we are really pleased that she's been honoured in that way. So, yes, welcome them to the stage. Kia ora tato. welcome to this session. Um, one of my favourite places to listen to music is in the car, and this whole festival is called Between Here and There, and <coughs> I, I felt... You know, where I live in the country, it takes me 30 minutes to get anywhere. And so music is my constant companion as I'm driving. And when um, Bill and Norman's latest project came out, Tell Me My Name, I had this on replay in my car endlessly, listening to it, for all different kinds of reasons. For the fact that I think Bill is probably one of my favourite musical poets in New Zealand and listening to the melody of Norman, it's um, really satisfying jazz hooks coming at me and other things and of course Hannah's mesmerising voice as a singer and all these things come together and make magic as you are listening and driving. But on my blog, New Zealand Poetry Shelf, I referred to this um, collaboration as a flotation device or a flotation aid and I thought that you know this kind of seems slightly hippie-ish and I am a girl of the 70s but when I was listening it felt like I was lifted up beyond um, domestic chores you know the clutter in my head challenges and all that kind of stuff so yes it was a flotation aid and po poetry and music does many things but for me that's what was happening <clears throat> and when I was driving here this morning from out near Bethel's Beach I kept coming across a found poem which was alternate route between you know and I couldn't get all of it except the alternate route and I came across one after the other, it was like a repetitive list poem, and I thought, I know I'm here, but I don't know how I'm going to get home. And I was thinking, you know, when you enter music, when you enter a poem, often there are those alternate routes, and you're not quite sure how you're going to make your way through the music and through the words. So it gives me great pleasure to have this conversation with Bill and Norman. Um, <clears throat> and I thought I would add a little intro from them to the already 
you know, the really clear intro you've got in your booklet. So I was going to ask them, first of all, Norman, what kind of poems do you like to read? My favourite poems are by New Zealand poets. Uh, and I think that's grown a stronger feeling as I've got older. And at the moment, the poem that I think about the most, or the suite of poems that I think about the most, is Dennis Glover's Sings Harry, because somehow that says something very true to me about what it is for me to be a New Zealander. Mm. And Bill, what kind of music do you like to listen to? Oh, well, I had to think about that the other day, because <laughs> I did one of those Radio New Zealand <coughs> Saturday afternoon mixtape things. That was amazing. Yeah, and... Uh, I mean, the, the first music I heard, I grew up in pubs, so the first music I heard was, was <coughs> rather drunk people around a piano sort of singing songs in South London Otago pubs. And then we were in a pub in Dunedin at the Crown Hotel, and there were, because we had uh, concert posters, I guess, on the wall, I went to, on the one hand, I went to the Beatles and the Everly Brothers and uh, Roy Orbison and people like that, free, because that was the deal. We, we put their posters on the wall. And, got some tickets. Uh, but that also meant going to the opera, which was an amazing thing. I, the first mm. opera I went to was the Magic Flute, and I had no idea what was going on, but that was another hotel freebie. Uh, and then I remember Jimmy Shandon and his band. Do people remember the little kilted man? With, uh, so the whole range of stuff. And then when I was a university student, the whole folk music scene was very big. Uh, and I think at that point I slowly drifted into liking most of all the sort of music that you might call singer-songwriter music, so Leonard Cohen or Randy Newman or Joni Mitchell. Or, so that's probably where I would sit mm. in the singer-songwriter territory. Mm. I was really fascinated last night looking at the audience when, when we were all listening to your spectacular performance and I wondered when you read a poem or when you write a poem or when you listen to music, does your body move? Does your body move when you read a poem or when you and listen to music? Eventually, but it takes me a little while to find the cadence of a poem, so I need mm -hmm. to read it three or four or six mm -hmm. or 15 times before I, but, you know, if it's iambic pentameter or something, that's quite obvious, you can move straight yeah, yeah. away, but with Bill's poems, for example, it takes me sometimes a little while to work out how the the accents or the rhyme schemes work and actually then especially if I'm sitting on the songs I, I do move I do move yeah. around a bit <coughs> do I when I read a poem do I move yeah yeah oh I mean my, my favorite definition of poetry is the Emily Dickinson one where someone like, you know she explained to someone in a letter how, <coughs> how she knew something was a poem and she said uh, if I feel as if the top of my head has been taken off I know that is poetry if I feel so cold, I know no fire will ever mm. warm me. I know that is poetry. Mm. Uh, that is how I know it. Is there any other way? And I think the whole body thing is absolutely total in yeah, responding to poetry. Yeah, I think so. And I, wanted, I want to move on to a general conversation, and then we're going to talk about um, the new project. But I wanted to start with you, Bill. I think of your poems as music chambers first and foremost, and then they take me to all kinds of places. So your latest book, Some Things to Place in a Coffin, is like, is like a music chamber, and then you go into little, little kind of tiny rooms of it. So I wondered, um, why is music such a significant feature of your writing? Yeah, I, d I don't know the answer to that. I mean, one answer I like to trot out now is that my current favourite definition of poetry 
which is, I think, attributed to the French writer Paul Valéry. And he says, uh, a poem is a prolonged hesitation between sound and sense, mm. i.e. between music and meaning. And uh, I, I think I got educated at high school into the idea that poems were big thoughts about the meaning of life. And while I wanted to write poetry, I knew that my big thoughts about the meaning of life were totally banal and totally derivative. Uh, and it was much more exciting to make poetic noises than to make poetic sense, mm. if that right. makes sense. Oh, it does. And so I think that's why I sort of tiptoed towards sound, towards music, more mm. than towards mm. sense. Yeah, because mm. I think, you know, when I, like, say, hotel emergencies, which is so, the sound is, is it's like a symphony of sound, but then it kind of taps into your heart, and it makes your body move, and so it is, it's a total body thing. I was wondering if you could actually read a poem that you wrote as a poem, and there's no history of it being a song or scored to music. So we could actually, and I <coughs> recommend shutting your eyes. So you shut your eyes and enter the music chamber of Frolic, which is in Victims of Lightning. Yeah, well, thank, thank you for suggesting that one. I mean, I've never read this aloud before. I think of it as music that I hear with my inner ear, as it were. Uh, and it's got sort of what looks like wordplay in it, but it's soundplay rather than wordplay. So, frolic. Late at night, the lake grows a little more laconic, like it wants not to want to say something. Moonlight, she says, like flower, like lick of water, like le lac. And then the managed river drops away. I, I was, I could actually imagine Hannah seeing that, but you know, for me the first thing is you get that hit of L, um, the ripple of alliteration going through, and it's like a ripple across the lake of the poem, and then I also like the way chords kind of get you when you listen to a poem, so there's that chord between laconic and lake, so it's a, it's a kind of larger lap across the lake of the poem. And I wondered, what difference does it make when you write a poem, which you have done, specifically to be scored to music? Do things change? Uh, yeah, I think they do. I mean, I should add, though Norman would say this for himself, that there are poems I've written which I think couldn't possibly be set to music. Mm. And they're the ones he loves going for oh, yeah, most. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but I, 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 I think a poem has to be a little bit insufficient. It can't be too absolute, too, too competent about itself musically, uh, mm. or, 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 or a lyric written for someone to work with, mm. you know, so... Uh, and that means that I don't mind uh, mistakes in the words too much. There are a couple of songs that Hannah, uh, she won't mind me saying this, I'm sure, sings a different word from the one I wrote, mm. and I don't mind in the least, because mm. there's a kind of emotional energy in the performance, which comes from Norman's setting, comes from Hannah's voicing, that, that carries everything anyway. So I don't mind if a word slips into another word. You might do that when you're performing your poems, do you? Never. Never? never. Really? God, no. Because <laughs> I've always got them in front of me. Oh, yeah. I'm, you okay. know, uh, yeah. <laughs> Norman, um, I was thinking about music and that perhaps there are 
different kinds of ways of listening, and I'm not sure. I can't listen to music with words when I write, but I can listen to music without words when I write. So there is a different kind of listening and absorption of music then. And I wondered, as a musician, what changes for you when you add words into the mix? Hmm. Well, I think music has meaning, but I think the meaning is contingent, and it's different for all of us. And it's not something we can easily articulate in precise ways. So you know, a word like sunrise has very, very clear evocations for us, and it does something. But when you hear a, you know, a, you know that does different work. It, meaning inheres in that very personally, but in different ways, not in specific ways. So music for me is this, this quite, it's very contingent and it changes every time it's read. Whereas a word, you know, a poem might sort of move a little bit in its meaning over time as we live with it, but actually those words mean something to us and it's, it's a little bit less fluid. So I think we, we can listen to music when we're writing because we're using different antennae. You know, we, we hear music with, it doesn't have semantic content. It doesn't have clear reference. It, it's much more diffuse than that, whereas words mean something. And I, I think they engage us in different ways. Mm. And I wonder if that's why they're powerful in combination, because we get something more or less concrete from words, and we can add an effect, effect to that. Well, it's interesting, because I really like opera, and I didn't used to be fluent in Italian, and so the words were musical notes. And then when I could understand the words because I could speak Italian, my whole relationship with Italian opera changed. Because, you know, I was actually flabbergasted at the stories being told and the, and, and the kind of meaning that was being carried. It was interesting. But I also wonder if you can think of a word as a double musical note. So if you take a word like licorice, you know, it's such a delicious word to say and put in a poem, but then if you sing it, and I don't know if I can sing, but licorice, you know, suddenly you've got different kinds of music happening mm. there. So it, the word has its own inherent music. And actually my relationship with licorice might change a little bit and then now I might like it, and before I didn't. But then when you make it a musical note, it becomes doubly musical, you know? Hmm. That's a really interesting thought. And I knew about this question beforehand and I still don't know how to respond to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some little phrases. Um, there's a song on our new album which contains the line, make love to me. And I knew that Hannah was going to sing that. And so I made some quite deliberate choices about making really delicious music through there. <laughs> because I really wanted to bring that out. It's so perfect in, this, in the poem. So you can take, it's a, what a beautiful thing, make love to me, what a beautiful thing to say to someone that you care for. And then if that can be wrapped in some music that's really inviting and sumptuous, you know, it adds something to that. So uh, yeah, yeah, double note, maybe. It's interesting, because put your hand up if you were here last night and heard the performance. Okay, so you know you know what we're talking about here and you know how mesmerizing it was. But when I was listening to you perform two of Bill's poems, Buddhist Rain and nineteen fifties, I was just so absorbed into them. But I began to think about poetry. An important part of poetry is the white space around the poem. You know, I love the white space around the poem. So what happens when you 
transform, and I would like to use the word transform, not translate, transform the poem into music. What happens to the white space? And for some crazy reason last night, I started to think that your piano was the white space. Because, you know, as, as a reader, we kind of stare, like, pun that word, we stare the white space. But your piano was kind of staring the white space. It was punctuating it with all these, like you said, that delicious music, the accents, almost like acutes and graves and swells and ebbs and flows. Do you think that kind of works for me to think like that? And I do, and I think that's related to what I said earlier about music lacking semantic meaning. So in a way, the music is white space because it doesn't contain semantic content. It doesn't contain precise meanings. It's white space with sugar because we've made it sweet and delicious, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it still doesn't mean something that I intend. It means what you mean it to mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so exactly. it, it's the white space with accoutrements. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, if you go out there, you've got a number of CDs you can buy out of your projects. What attracts you to a poem? I mean, it was interesting to hear that some of Bill's poem that you think, well, that can't go into music, and you think, well, that can. What, what's the hook, you know, or are there lots of hooks? Uh, I especially need to feel sympathetic to the semantic or the content or the meaning. It, if, if it was a poem about something that I was un, uncomfortable with or that I didn't want to turn into a song, I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't, wouldn't mm. be sufficiently engaged. I, I just wouldn't. Uh, so I need, I need to be comfortable with, with the meanings that I take from the poem. Mm. But I think some sort of inherent musicality, there's something about the, the ebb and flow of the words and the rhythms that, that are really helpful for me. Uh, and there are some poems that I thought I really like that, but I can't find music in it. There are, mm. there are wonderful poets who are, whose work I respect deeply, but the music of the poetry is somehow cold, and I can't find ways to translate that into music. So um, Bill's work is, is really, I've, well, we've had a lot of fun with it, and there's <laughs> an inherent musicality. I love working with David Mitchell's words. Mm. I, I, just the way they dance, is they're full of music to me, and, and uh, that helps. I'm going to ask... Bill to read one of the poems. I'm not going to tell you the title because the titles are the riddle. This is a book of riddles and the riddles have become songs and then the songs become riddles and at the back the index, the title of the poems are the answer to the riddles and I'm a cryptic crossword fan and I never look up the answers and I have never looked at that list at the back yet and the book's been out a while. I've accidentally found out one because of today. Um, but I'm going to read you the first line of the poem. Um, one, it's, it needed two to make me. Bill's going to read the poem, and then we might give you a chance to guess what the riddle is. OK, so, <laughs> so the old device of riddles, at least in Anglo-Saxon poetry, is that a, an everyday object talks about itself in slightly misdirecting ways. And so this is happening here. Something is talking, and you have to guess what it is. And if you know already, you're not allowed to guess. Because <laughs> you know already. Yeah. Okay. It needed two to make me. It needed two to sigh. It needed two to drift apart. It needed two to cry. I'm always at the cinema. I'm always at the beach. I'm waiting in that secret place that lovers try to reach. Somewhere in the future, somewhere in the past, something you return to when days are overcast. Oh, I am what you dream of, 
and I am what you dread, and I am what you leave behind, but never quite forget, what you dare not wish for, what you dare not name, and I am here a single time and never come again, somewhere in the future, somewhere in the past, something you return to when days are overcast. We should have a prize for whoever guesses it, but we haven't, have we? No, we haven't. I'm trying to think of a prize, but no, I haven't. Lunch with one. Jacinda Ardern. That would be <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She'd say yes. Okay, so what, what's the solution to that riddle? Anyone? For me, it is the book you, you have in your bag for waiting in a long queue, a long haul flight, and it gives you a chance to spend, a, and, and of course, the driving a long time. Okay, Bill, big reveal. Uh, has anybody clicked? Uh, yeah, so it's first kiss. Yeah. It needed two to make me, it needed two to sigh, it needed two to drift apart, it needed two to cry, and so on. Mm -hmm. yeah. Why riddles? Why riddles? Yeah. I think I've always liked riddles. You know, people, I mean, the, the, there's the bad side of riddles, and we all. Have, have that horrible feeling at high school that we can't understand the bloody poems we're supposed to be studying, and so the poem turns into a riddle. But uh, I think poetry's driven by riddles, especially in metaphors. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if people know that Sylvia Plath poem called Yore, which is the first poem in her aerial collection, which is just a set of metaphors for a developing fetus and then a baby. It's just fantastic. Mm. Uh, I think the last lines are something like, a clean slate with its own face on, or its new face on. But it's metaphor after metaphor after metaphor. But it's basically a riddle poem. Or there's a famous poem from back in the 80s, I think, called A Martian Sends a Postcard Home. And it goes, Caxtons are mechanical birds with many wings, and some are treasured for their markings. I have never seen one fly, but sometimes they perch on the hand. And that's... Uh, that's a description of a book from the point of view of a Martian who doesn't understand <laughs> yeah. Caxton as a book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a mechanical bird with many wings. Yeah, so all the pages. I've never seen one fly, but sometimes they perch on the hand. And on it goes. So I've always felt that that kind of thing was important inside poetry, the image and the metaphor, and especially the simile, because they're misdirecting systems of misdirection. Yeah. And so... That's one of the reasons I'm interested in riddles, but mm. it may not be. It's interesting because I've just done a, an interview with um, Irene Beautray, who has just published a new collection of poems which I adore called um, Flow, Wanganui River Poems. And it's, it's, it's a kind of bringing together of the voices and the history of the river. It's like a chorus, a symphony of voices but she puts no end notes. So every poem, which is so multi-layered and so enigmatic, is kind of like a riddle. And if you had the end notes, you would see, ah, it's in debt to this, this poem, this incident, this conflict. But in, I love the fact there are no end notes because it's like your book of riddles. I don't want to look at the list at the back. I just want to have those riddles of those poems with me for a long time, and it's the whole sense of surprise and discovery. So, Norman, I wondered whether, with this book, you know, that whole sense of riddle became something that I don't, 
I'm not a musician, so, you know, did you explore a sense of riddle when you were scoring it? Stravinsky famously said that he hated ciphers in music. And I read that as a young person. <laughs> I think I've been infected by it. But there is music that's very clever and has sort of Byzantian little things going on that make it complicated and intertextual and stuff like that, which I don't really care for. Music for me is largely as an affective or an emotional response, sometimes intellectual, but mostly you know, I, I like it when it pulls my heartstrings. So um, I didn't try and use clever musical ciphers. Actually, I'm, I don't mean to use clever in a pejorative way there, but I, I didn't want to be all composerly. I was trying to write music that was lovely to listen to. So the, the only place, that, and as I said, you know, music lacks semantic content. The only ways that I could <coughs> use little riddling things with these were when the solutions of the riddles were somehow sonic, or some of them are musical instruments, for example. So I did things in the composing and the arranging of the music that gestured toward the solutions, uh, kind of leading you by the hand, though, the, the little lights in the aeroplane that lead you to the exit. So there was, there was, there was that with the ones, and there's, there's one of the solutions is something to do with sound. And in the musical setting, I, I won't give away too much here, but I, I did some things with how we arranged the music that represents the solution. We could say the word bagpipes, couldn't we? We could say the word bagpipes. Yeah. I love that because then it works on your body in, in a different way. I was also wondering how it worked collaborating together, and that were you know. How did the collaboration work? Like la last night, Selena was saying, you know, I had a big piece of paper, I do a circle, put unity in, and then tried to conjure up the poem for the Queen. And that was a collaboration with herself that was challenging. Was, you know, is it full of harmonies, just harmonies, and just absolute delightful discoveries? I think basically I produce a text first, and Norman likes it or doesn't like it. Uh, and might suggest some changes that should be made. And that's how, it, that's basically it, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very passive-aggressive relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so if I really don't like it, I don't see it. And if Bill really doesn't like it, he usually doesn't say too much. <laughs> I do remember the first time he heard our setting of Death of a Poet, which was, I suppose, an allergy for Charles Causley, yeah. which is, it's an important poem to you, I think, or Charles was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and we played it, and afterwards I said to, to Bill, was that all right? And he said, yeah, you didn't fuck it up. So <laughs> it was quite reassuring. <laughs> was there a poem that really worked for you? Maybe, um, Bill, you could go first. That you, you know, well, actually, I think the, there are several that work in different ways, but I think the one you heard Hannah sing is the one that I like most in a very deep, basic, simple way because that's that's probably in the zone of the singer-songwriter you know you could imagine mm. someone with a guitar just mm. sitting on a stage and singing that uh, you know you wouldn't want it orchestrate you wouldn't want a whole lot of lush violins in the background mm. though there is a single fiddle on the cd recording mm. isn't there uh, but yeah that's the one i would probably go for uh, we sang we performed warehouse curtains last oh, yes. night oh that was amazing and I don't really know what that poem's about at all, but there's somehow hidden in there menace and something disquieting. And I'm really happy with... It took years. Actually, I wrote the song years ago, and it took us years to work out how to perform it and make it work. Um, but especially on the recording, it's on a record called Small Souls in the Silence. Uh, we, there are dark clouds, you know, 
Yeah, which and, and there's sort of this sense of repetition, isn't there, mm. that, that you're really great at. And it, for the music too, is, it's coming at you in waves, you know. Mm. And that's quite addictive and it's kind of startling but comforting and mm. feeds into all these different kinds of things. It's, it was a stunning poem, which is why I really wanted to turn it into a song. So. Mm. I wondered... Um, I've just got one more question so that I can give you a very short time to ask questions. But I wondered if there are just um, two or three words that characterise your experience of this collaboration, which is kind of producing a hybrid, you know, a poem, music. It's like, you know, the novel translated into film, it becomes something altogether different. But are there two words that really kind of sum this up for you? Don't worry if you're on. Do you want me to go first? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, I'm in the odd situation. Usually what happens, I think, is that Norman and I find, lately anyway, find a territory that we want to work in. So there's a bunch of Antarctic songs that are in a book called These Rough Notes, which is out there, which has glorious photographs by Anne Noble in it of Antarctic science and of Scott and so, so on. Or The Riddles Project, or we've recently been working on a project which involves... Uh, old Norse mythology, you know, Ragnar Rurik is coming, watch out, you know. Donald Trump is bringing it to us, especially <laughs> from... So we've been working in that territory. And so we somehow seem to settle on a territory that we want to explore. And so I... My first word would be struggle to find things inside that territory that I want to work with and that I think Norman might find interesting. And then when I get something, there's total pleasure. So I would, I would go struggle slash pleasure, mm. you know, and there must be bits in between, but they're the two things I feel most, I think. Because I did wonder, you know, um, as poets, we might not want our poems kind of... If, if a poem goes into music, it might lose its inherent music and become something other. So there must be gains and losses when you do this. And for the music, when you add the words there must be gains and losses for the music. So that kind of struggle-pleasure thing is, is kind of, to me, it's signposting that this is an experience of gains and losses in a way. I don't yeah, know. that's true. That's true. Mm. Um, for me, uh, the first word I'd use is work. Uh, I love work. <laughs> uh, and work confers to paraphrase Margaret Maher, who said, stories confer structure upon our lives. I think work confers a kind of structure on our lives. It gives us a, a, still, a still turning point. Uh, so it's wonderful work, but it's work. And the other side of it is, I suppose, love or affection. I feel such enormous affection for Bill and Hannah and the musicians we work with. And that permeates everything we do. Uh, so to, to be in Auckland with these guys to do this, it's just such a joy. These people I really care about and just enjoy being with. So I would say work and love, though, mm. which is, for me, are the big themes in life, really. They're, they're our pole stars. And that comes back to your heart, doesn't it? You, know, you, you said your heart is driving the music. So that comes through in that love, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. OK, let's have a couple of questions from the audience. Why don't I tell you a good story I heard about uh, Malame and Debussy, just in terms of the setting poems to music yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. Uh, which is that apparently Malame 
writes his poem, Afternoon of a Fawn. What is it? Is it Afternoon of a Fawn? Anyway, yeah. Uh, I can't think what it is in French, but I think that's the English. So he writes that, uh, and Debussy writes his piece, without the words, I think, Norman, isn't it? He writes a response piece, as it were, or an equivalent piece. Uh, and that's performed, and Mallarmé goes along to it, Debussy's invitation, and uh, sits there dutifully as the poet, listening to what the musician, the composer, has done, and afterwards says to Debussy, oh, you are a great genius, you know, you have understood me completely, and blah de blah de blah in French. Uh, and, and then goes home and either writes down or says to someone, I thought I had set it to music already. <laughs> Good story, eh, Norman? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Untrue. <laughs> when I was hearing that, I was wondering, Norman, whether, you know, because I said, you know, the whole thing about hearing the music in the poem, when you play a piece of music that doesn't have words on it, and I'm listening to it, am I kind of building words like a kind of word track? I don't know. And if you are, maybe it's different for every person who it listens. It would be different for every person, mm. yeah. Which makes it a very beautiful media. I mean, T.S. Eliot was asked once what, what his poems mean, and he said, I mean them what they mean to mean. Or, they mean what I mean them to mean, that was it. And the neat thing about music is it means what you mean it to mean. It belongs to you when it's gone out into the air. Mm. So that's really a fantastic thing to be involved in. You can't be too precious or too protective of that. It's like poetry. Mm. Bill, um, the poem we're going to finish with the first line is, I am quiet when I call. So, maybe, so I should read that? Yeah, read it. See if I can find it. I was thinking, why are you looking? If we had had an extra 15 minutes, I would have get, got Norman to play a piece of music and we could have built the word tracks in, my, in our minds as we listened. Okay, so here are the words. Uh, much more interesting when they're, when they're performed by Norman and Hannah. I am quiet when I call, I am the nothing that is all, I am the wave that will not fall. I shine on seas beyond the moon, I am the bride without a groom, I am the yawning afternoon. I am the land without a stone, I am silence on her throne, I am water turning into bone. And that's the biggest clue, that last line. And I've stolen that from an Anglo-Saxon poem, actually. Uh, Any idea of what that might be? We're not going to tell them anyway, are we? No, we won't no. tell you this one. <laughs> you have a golden opportunity to go and buy a CD so that you can put it in your car and have it on endless repeat. <laughs> and we have people here to sign them for you. So thank you. And Bill, that was fabulous. And I do encourage you to listen. You need to listen a lot of times, I'm finding. I get so much more each time that I listen. And I also wanted to say, Bill, how much my 10-year-old is enjoying your riddles. 10, 9, 10, 11-year-olds really seem to enjoy riddles. And That's he's the right particularly age liking yeah. your collection. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.